Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Before we start this message, let's start with a prayer. Let your gospel, O Lord, come unto us in word and in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Spirit that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience and enduring of your will with joyfulness that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, it's been one and a half years of going through 1 Corinthians, and this is the final sermon in the series. One thing that I've heard in response after going over this letter with you all is that uh, you realize that these guys are messed up. And the next thought after that was that uh, we are messed up. Even in the incredibly sinful state that the Corinthian church was in, the Apostle Paul guides this church. Subsequently, speaking to all of God's churches, uh, guides this church into a place of holiness, unity, and maturity. It wasn't all soft. Many times it was an open rebuke. And here are the final sentences of this letter. And in these final sentences, he says and he shows us that all of this was done in love. From the beginning to the end, love was Paul's motive for writing this letter. And through it, Paul is teaching the Corinthians, love should be the motivator in how you act too. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. We sometimes don't know how to identify this kind of love. I mean, it could be a gentle word, but a gentle word could also not be love. Sometimes it could be open rebuke. Some of you think, uh, some of you who think you are rebuking others um, are only exerting your self-righteous position. Sometimes it's hard to accept love that manifests itself as open rebuke. It's so difficult to tell which acts are genuinely out of love. How can you tell? How can you tell? How do I know which ones to accept and which ones to reject? Is what someone might be thinking after hearing all this. However, after reading this letter and going over it for the past year and a half, I hope that this church is better equipped to answer this kind of question. For the past few weeks, we have seen examples 
of the manifestations of love. And in the closing sentences of the letters, we see this come out and exercised. And by now, it shouldn't shock you that uh, to reach this point of showing examples, to get to the place that the Corinthians would be able to discern how to exercise love, they needed to be rebuked for basically 15 chapters. And so open rebuke shouldn't shock you now. In Proverbs 27.5, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Here the teacher is measuring open rebuke versus hidden love. Which one is better? Which one is better, open rebuke or hidden love? And the answer is open rebuke. It's a higher form of love. Love that cannot confront a friend when the friend is in danger is not love. What kind of love is that? It's a lesser kind that someone can uh, then someone that can come up to you then and to tell you that you need to stop sinning. You need to stop sinning. Stop holding grudges. Stop letting the seed of bitterness get planted into your heart. Stop acting out in pride rather than stooping down to serve and love the saints. The higher love is to openly rebuke a brother or sister rather than to hide your love. Why? In the very next verse of Proverbs, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful meaning it was designed to help you and not break you. In a true friendship, sometimes painful and plain words must be spoken in order to heal and to restore. If you love a friend, there will inevitably come a time when you will be rebuked or you will receive rebuke. I would think that it would go both ways because both people will get into trouble at one time or another. The enemy, however, just lays down kisses. They are insincere, hypocritical, and full of deceit. If you had to choose one or the other, what would you rather receive? If you had to choose one or the other, what would you rather give? I'm afraid that we live in a world where affirmation is the only sign of love that is to be accepted. In fact, if you don't affirm someone's lifestyle or choice, then it should be considered hate. This may be the stupidest and most foolish understanding of love. We've lost even our basic instinctual responses to a friend that might be in danger. We're getting to a place where we'll see a friend walking onto oncoming traffic and we'll go, hey, watch out. I tried. Instead of going, hey, watch out. When a life's friend is saved, who would he think is the better friend? I can imagine arguments then going with friends these days complaining about how they could have said it better your tone could have been better here. Perhaps you could have that conversation. But never, never conflate tone to the absence of truth. These wounds that Paul gives in his letter are heavenly, heavily laden 
with his care and concern over the Corinthian church. He employs every method of teaching, rebuking, correction that he can. From the beginning, where people created factions and sects to open sins so egregious that even the secular world will look upon it with disdain, to Christian infighting where they would even sue each other in the church, to avoiding marriage, demanding celibacy because they had no idea what a healthy marital relationship looked like, to abstaining from certain foods because of its origin. All of these were examples of how weak their faith and understanding was, but more importantly, how weak their love was. They didn't know how to conduct themselves as men and women in a local worship setting. They took the Lord's Supper as some pagan ritual, some party to come, not knowing that when you take the bread and the cup without faith, you are literally drinking judgment upon yourself. This is why we fence the table here. It's out of love for the people that are here. If you do not have faith in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you are living in unrepentant sin, do not take the bread, don't take the cup. And I'll say it again. Do you love Christ? Don't take the bread and the cup if you don't. In chapter 12, people viewed spiritual gifts then as modes of power instead of gifts designed to be used to serve one another, to build the body. They took it so far as to adopt pagan rituals of tongues and spoke gibberish, calling it tongues. Some of you may have had a hard time with those string of messages, but it's right there in chapter 14. It says, don't speak then. Sit yourself down in a corner. If you are speaking something that no one can interpret. In Acts, there was never a tongue that was spoken that someone did not understand. The Corinthians were completely butchering the gifts by inserting this pagan gibberish that was prevalent during the time. Paul would go on to say, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'd rather speak five words. Obey the word of God. Five words. Then a myriad, that's the Greek word, a myriad. Any and every kind of syllable that you can utter that is gibberish. I'd rather speak five words than any and every kind of syllable that you can utter. Some of you responded to me saying that that might have been a bit harsh. It's not me that said it. Take it up with God. And I would say it again if I had to. The very next verse shows Paul's heart. He says, stop being children in your thinking. You're holding on to this so badly, and yet it does nothing for your edification. It's sensationalism raised to a dangerous degree, and it's keeping you infantile in your thinking. That's what he says in chapter 14. In chapter 15, we saw people would flat out deny the resurrection. Maybe they were confused with the paganistic notion of the resurrection as if resurrection was like the myths of Osiris. Perhaps not unlike how we view resurrection like the raising of zombies. It makes for great movies, but it is intellectually defunct. 
So more likely they thought that any idea of resurrection was left intellectually wanting. But the Christian idea and promise of resurrection is that in Christ, those that are to live with him in eternity will be fitted with bodies for eternity. Temporal bodies are for temporary times. Eternal bodies are for eternity. They had all these ideas that were not from God, but worldly, foolish, that needed to be corrected. If you're all about tone, I don't think you could get through chapter 1. In chapter 1, it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. What is he saying? God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the low. That's you. That's you right here. That's what Paul is saying. That's you. And you might be like, that's harsh, that's harsh. But why? Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And now in Christ, if we have wisdom, it's God's wisdom. If we are strong, it's God's strength. If we are lifted up, it's because the Son of Man was first lifted up. Now at the end of the letter, <clears throat> letter, we saw the exercising or manifestations of love. This is then how you ought to love. And for the last few weeks in chapter 16, we saw that in love you give. We learned that it is an there is an express purpose for the collection. We learned how we ought to give. Then we saw that we are to work. We are to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way with consuming zeal. We saw that in love we are to be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And last week we saw the example of Stephanus and his family teaching us on what the fellowship of the saints looked like. So let's look at our last portion today. In verse 19, it says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. There is one church. First, as we've gone over in this letter, Paul is talking about united, being united, but being united in what? United in doctrine. The church of God is united in true doctrine. It's the word of God that unites the church. And once the people in Corinth recognized this, they would realize that the churches of Asia would also be united to them because they would have also been united by God's word. Paul sent letters to each of these churches as well. If you look, if you took the study on the first part of Revelation with us this summer, you would have had the experience of a lifetime by being stuck in church until 5 a.m. because of the floods. But you also saw that Jesus addressed each of the churches in Asia Minor. He corrected, admonished, rebuked, and sometimes praised, but he united them how? With his word. There is ultimately one church, and it's Jesus Christ's church. There is one bride, that's the church, and there's one bridegroom, that's Jesus. Now, I have heard some people think that we at CGS are a little too haughty, a little too prideful when it comes to theology. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like that. 
I don't teach the way that I do so that you would go out to intimidate other people in other churches. Churches all have their problems. I think the majority of us recognize that we are no better than the Corinthians. And the word of God is admonishing us to start obeying God. That wouldn't put us in a place of superiority over the other churches. I would think that if you are part of this church, recognizing where you have been, where you came from, and by the grace of God where you are being led, we would likewise show grace to others. I'm not saying we'd compromise doctrine. That's ridiculous. I am saying our doctrine teaches us to also love others in the way we have been loved by teaching them correct doctrine because all of God's people is one church. A few years back, I told the elders, and before we had elders, I told the deacons that I felt in my spirit there would be a sifting in the church. And if you're a leader here, you understand because I've said it multiple times, God would separate, even only in part, the wheat from the tares. People would leave sound doctrine to embrace the ideologies of the world. And with each passing year, the secular ideological force has only gotten stronger. We saw fear grip the world over a novel virus. And I never said we shouldn't take the proper and measured precautions. But fear should never drive our behavior. And more importantly, it will not dictate the worship of God who holds eternal life in his hands. And I vowed with the elders of this church to never give in to the scare tactics that we see the media and the government institutions peddling. I shared this, but I thank God for raising leaders that stood against tyrannical decrees when governments would close down churches over the virus, when the death rate was in the single digits. They would jail pastors in Canada, too, who would not refuse to hold services. They would hold services, and they would jail these pastors. I saw gym owners with more guts than some church leaders who did not open up their churches for worship. I see world leaders unmasked, taking photos, having meetings, eating side by side while forcing our children and our babies to wear masks. I spoke on the virus in detail in many of our podcasts. My concerns of what fear would drive us all to do, to have us give up. We were convinced to make anyone that didn't agree with the general consensus that they were crazy, and this is more important, we ought to take that extremely personally. These fools were killing your family and friends, and so what happened was dividing us was so easy. The church of Christ must never be divided so easily. We must stand on the word of God. Fear should not dictate our actions, but rather the word of God shows us how in love we can be united. This is why we are exhorted to continually study, learn, and grow. And I have to say this as well. I have never been more encouraged by the people in this church 
than I have been the last year. I know for a fact that some of you were scared. Some of you even lost family and friends. But still you mustered up the courage and strength to make worshiping God and the fellowship of the saints a priority. And the Lord in his faithfulness has made us bear much fruit physically and spiritually. Praise God for that. But we are one church. All of God's people adhering to God's word are led by God. Let's remember that when we also interact with others from other churches. Obviously, there are some churches who do not follow the overt teachings of Scripture. And so you might ask, how should we engage those churches? And I would answer just like we would like to be engaged with prayer and with the exercises of love that we see in Scripture. So let's be reminded as Paul sends his greetings from all the churches in Asia to Corinth that we also belong to one God, one holy word, one church. Aquila and Prisca are mentioned next. Aquila and Prisca, it's Priscilla in Luke's writings, but Paul always calls her Prisca. The NIV is weird. So if you've read the NIV, the NIV is weird like that where they, he, they just like wrote Priscilla for everything. But Paul always calls her Prisca. Anyway, Aquila was a Jew from Rome. When Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews in Rome, Aquila and his wife Prisca went to Corinth. And these were the definition of a power couple. They taught the superstar Apollos. They helped Paul when he first came to Corinth with his tent making and had him stay with them. In Romans 16, we see that, that they even risked their lives for Paul. And I mention this often, but Prisca was someone quite extraordinary. Four out of the six times this couple is mentioned, Prisca's name is mentioned first. To mention the husband first is ordinary. It takes nothing away from Prisca or the couple in general. But to mention her first is to put a highlight and to raise her to a superlative degree. Aquila was also a great man, his wife, and an outstanding person in her own right. This was the power couple. If you were married and you wanted to look to a couple, you wanted to look up to a couple, look no further. This is the couple. These were leaders of the church, probably known throughout the churches in Asia, and they would send hearty greetings to the Corinthians. But what made them stand out here in this passage? What made them stand out here in this passage? I gave you all these facts about Prisca and Aquila, but what made them stand out here? They had a house church. That's what made them stand out. I have no doubt that many great leaders were raised there. But here's the point. They knew hospitality. I love that we have a building that we can hold our services and even our studies in smaller groups. But Aquila and Prisca were known because they opened up their house. Hospitality is a spiritual gift that people frequently underestimate. And I think they underestimate it because they don't know the scriptures. Remember in chapters 12 to 14 again, where people wanted the power gifts, tongue, prophecy, knowledge, knowledge, 
And here, Aquila and Prisca are not acknowledged for any of those, but rather the house church that they had. Once again, if you do aspire to be truly like the faithful example shown to us in the Bible, what gift stands out? In fact, the New Testament makes a great emphasis on hospitality. There was a sense in which every home was open to every other member. Your home as a Christian should be open for the saints to meet, pray, and study the Word of God. And yes, when people enter your home, they'll see what you prioritize. They'll see what's hung on your walls, what kind of furniture you have, what kind of food you eat. But they get to see or peer into, what they get to see or peer into is your life. You are inviting them to share life with you. And that's exactly how we then should enter into someone else's home. The hosts have invited us into sharing their lives with us. I would do it with gratitude and respect, no matter how big or small the house is. No matter if they have a charcuterie board or just a cheese platter. Uh, They're exactly the same thing, by the way. If the first point was that the church is one, the second one is that the church is hospitable. These go hand in hand because if they have the right doctrine, they should also receive all your hospitality. Where do we find this? And turn with me, if you want to, to 2 John. And in 2 John, we can read a few verses together. In 2 John, that's right after 1 John in case you didn't know where it was, and it's before 3 John. Uh, But 2 John is just one chapter. And in verse 6, it starts out like this. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So I've read this because there is a limit placed on a person's hospitality. But it also shows that anything short then of rank heresy, one should be hospitable. I think it's so important that even if you were to be an elder, I don't think you can be an elder if you do not have the gift of hospitality. You just would not meet the qualifications. It's right there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, which means an elder, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and there it is, hospitable. It's such an incredibly valued gift that an elder must have it. 
In the church, people often had to travel. We don't always have money to set up people in hotels. When this church was a bit smaller and our budget was a little bit more meager, we had a brother visit us from the UK, and he stayed with me in my small apartment at the time. Uh, and it was great. It was great. He slept on the couch. Uh, but we had a blast. But that's what I see in the church in Acts. People traveled and stayed in other people's homes. There was a love for our fellow brothers. And it shows you how much love was in the church. Again, unity and hospitality go hand in hand. In verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I love when this was read this morning. There was a pause before holy kiss, which I think is the proper way to read it. But this is the favorite verse of many here in this church. This isn't a one-time appearance, though, in the New Testament. It comes out at least four other times. And not only by Paul. It comes out in Romans 16, 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, and Peter, 1 Peter 5, 14. They all teach us to greet one another with a holy kiss. So I suppose it's important that now that we've studied a little hospitality, that we should also study a little biblical kissology. The word for kiss is philema and only occurs seven times in the New Testament, with five of those times in reference to the holy kiss. It never refers to a kiss that a man and woman would have. The two other times was in reference to a greeting men would have, with one of those times that would refer to Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. That was Philema. So Philema was predominantly used as a sign of affection between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. In the Septuagint, it's used twice. Once was Proverbs 27, which we read earlier, and the other time is in Song of Solomon. And it's this time it's between, used between a groom and his bride. In Song of Solomon 1, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So this kiss is used mainly to describe greetings of affection between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And the only time it would be for a man and a woman is if they are husband and wife. That's the biblical context that I want to give you. That's the biblical context. There are other kisses where this specific word is not used, but there are other kisses, which is romantic there is one kiss between the prostitute and the young man lacking sense in Proverbs 7.13. But I have also found there is another kiss uh, in Song of Solomon 4.11. In 4.11 it says, Your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. I believe you kids call it the French kiss. But before the French laid claim to it, Solomon already knew about it. And again, the biblical context was shared between a man and his wife. I suppose it would be weird if everyone started calling it the Solomon kiss instead of the French kiss, but then it would be more correct. Anyway, taking anything away from the French is a plus for me. Without fries or the kiss, they're left with baguettes, I guess. But I digress. In the Bible, a kiss was a sign of affection that in the East we would see happen quite often. It would be used as a sign of blessing too. If a father would bless his son, there would be a kiss. 
This sign of affection would normally be from cheek to cheek. It still happens in today's society in certain circles, between many times between family members. You go over my mom's family uh, when we all kiss each other in the cheek. But over the years, the church has lost this greeting, the kiss. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church would take the holy kiss, then they would change it into the ceremonial thing. And now a holy kiss was something that's instituted to the church as a rite or part of a ceremony. So they started just kissing everything. They kissed the elements of the Mass. They started kissing the statues of the saints. Some people would take the cross around their neck and kiss it. But institutionalizing the kiss wasn't what Paul was going for. Well, Roman Catholics wanted to stay faithful to the Word of God, so they started kissing relics, they started kissing the altar, they started kissing the priest's hand and whatnot. That is obviously not the context that we see here in the Scriptures. The hearty and warm greetings that Aquila and Prisca sent were to be also mimicked within the church over, the, over time in the Western world. Over the, the kiss stopped being a sign of affection between men and between women. And now when people in the church try to institute it again, it just gets weird fast, like really fast. But what is symbolized is a deep sign of affection. Hearty greetings. And the word hearty is there because Paul wanted to write, Prisca and Aquila really want to send their most heartfelt greetings to you. That's the word. Hearty greetings is what you can send over a letter. But when you're in person, you are to express a deeper affection because you can. You can. Here, here are your eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. These are your friends. And your expression of affection should reflect that reality. In our context, that could mean a kiss, but it could also mean a heartfelt hug, a sturdy handshake, or even a hand on the shoulder. The point is that when we love each other, we show and express that love through proper affection. We don't just come here and stare at each other and then leave. That's weird. If you are that person that just stares and leaves, then I will admonish you. If you're struggling with showing affection, start with a handshake, a fist bump, maybe a warm smile. Uh, don't just start kissing dudes. You may be disciplined. But <laughs> show affection is the point. Show affection. So if the unified church is hospitable, then we also should show deep affection to one another. In verse 21 and on, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Letters back in the day were recited and recorded by someone else. Paul's way of showing authenticity in his letters was that he would write a portion of it with his own hand. I'm writing this with my own hand. This is my signature, so to speak. And so he does that here in the end of this letter too. This is me. This is my personal mark. And this is what he writes with his own hand. 
If anyone does not have love for the Lord, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Everything, everything must start with a love for the Lord. If you do not love the Lord, all this stuff that we talked about does not pertain to you. Don't worry about it. Why? Because you need to hear the gospel first. You need to hear and believe the gospel first. Don't come to church because you need a friend. Don't come to church because you want to network. Don't come to church because you like its hospitality. Don't get me wrong. In church, you will find friends. I guarantee it. Stay long enough and you will develop deep and edifying relationships. I know this for a fact. You know why? Because together we study God's word and we have his Holy Spirit guiding us. That's why. It's as simple as that. And you will network. You will receive hospitality. But first things first. Without a love for the Lord Jesus, all of this won't save you. It won't edify you and it won't sanctify you. It'll be a means to an end, and that end will be destruction. Paul's strong words are followed by Maranatha, our Lord, come. There is judgment coming. The Lord will come and will ultimately remove and separate the wheat from the tares. Peter would write about how judgment would begin in the house of the Lord. And like I said before, we see it happening today. Those who fear other things and not the Lord, judgment is coming. And you might think, why would Paul end the letter on such a sour note? But after reading the letter in its entirety, I hope you don't. The wolves and false prophets enter the fold to disrupt, deceive, and devour its members. As an apostle and an elder, he is fiercely protective of the flock of Christ. We now also reading this should be able to see this. This is why in our church, our membership doors are small. It's narrow. Our back door is wide if you want to leave. But our entrance door is small. It's because we know the word of God admonish us, admonishes us to do this. You can't be a member if you don't love Christ. You can't be a member if you don't know the gospel. You can't be a member if you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now we should understand why. And then he gives us this very short benediction, a shortened version of the one I give, and he wraps this letter up with his love in Christ. Despite all the harsh rebukes we saw in the letter, all of it has been done in love. This letter is wrapped in the love of Christ. We've read the word amen, but there is actually no amen in the Greek manuscripts. It's just something that the translators added. And I can definitely relate. After reading a letter like this, how can you not respond with an amen? How could you not? <clears throat> But the last word in the letter, the last word to the Corinthians, is Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we know that all things begin and end with you. We have lived a life previously where we thought all things began and ended with us. Forgive us of our pride, our obstinance, our lack of wisdom. And Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts so that we would be able to recognize who truly is king and thereby, through your work, through what you have done for us, truly be free. Free to worship, free to live out our lives in the ultimate joy that is promised us in Christ. Let's take this time to pray. And as the Lord admonishes us, let us reflect on what we have learned from the word. And as our hearts have hit up against the word, help us. Uh, let's pray that the Lord would help us conform to the word and be transformed. Let's pray.